This is Fight Night, a new podcast from iHeartRadio. They thought he had robbed the deadliest man in this country. Guys who would not hesitate to blow your head off. This story from Atlanta, Georgia, has been reported for 50 years. But now, for the first time, you're going to hear what really happened from the people who lived it. Listen and follow Fight Night on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 13 Days of Halloween. A remote hotel, the most unusual guests, a tour guide that can't be trusted. And the newest arrival is you. Why are you here again? They sound like someone you trust. I know. Starring Keegan-Michael Key as the caretaker. Please make yourself at home. After all, this is it. One story each night, starting October 19th and ending on Halloween. From iHeartRadio and Blumhouse Television, listen to Aaron Mankey's 13 Days of Halloween on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For the week of Thursday, June 25th, rallies, protests, coronaviruses, Saharan dust clouds, the Loch Ness Monster is back, and a Friday night massacre. 2020 continues to be the year that keeps on giving a shit. I'm Clay Aiken. After two weeks of single-party episodes with a little shuttle diplomacy, Politicon returns to form this week and to our regularly scheduled programming with a multi-partisan panel to answer questions like, where is President Trump's focus at the moment? What exactly is Bill Barr up to? And who might be the next casualty in the current wave of culture cancellations? Ellie Mistal returns to the pod this week. He's a frequent contributor on networks like MSNBC and CNBC, and he's the justice correspondent for The Nation. Henry Olson is an author and a columnist for The Washington Post. And Ben Dominich is a political contributor for multiple TV networks and the publisher of The Federalist. They're here to help us answer those questions and hopefully also answer how the heck are we going to get along? How is everyone? Ellie, Henry, Ben, how are you all this evening? Good. Well, no air conditioning. We st- yeah, right? Where are you right now, Ellie? I'm in Westchester, which is usually fine, but my office has no air conditioning, well, so it's a thing. Well, I am. It was. It was. I was just telling the producers a little bit ago. It was like in the 60s and 70s last week, and it is 98 to 97 today, and the humidity is it's like walking through soup here. It's awful. And Ben, you're in D.C., yeah? Uh, yes, and uh, uh, we we're actually okay today. I'm sh- I'm sure that Henry's here uh, as well, but uh, it's it's actually pretty nice outside. Uh, Ellie, I just wanted to tell you, uh, I noticed that you were writing about Naomi Rao. Uh, you should uh, you should. Thank Senator Josh Hawley for the fact that she will never be a Supreme Court nominee. You don't have anything to worry about on that front. Are you sure about oh, that? Oh, God, fill me in. What happened? What happened, Ellie? <laughs> uh, Naomi just uh, did her thing today uh, uh, on the on the um, Bill Barr, uh, Michael Flynn thing. Uh, and her opinion is just, it's, I mean, it's classic Rao. It's class, I, I, I've, I've had Naomi Rao as the most dangerous justice that Trump has appointed since she got her nomination, and today was just another another day. Well, Henry can yeah. So fill me in. Me. What happened? Like, what was her reasoning behind throwing this out? Because I have got to admit, I'll just throw it out here right now. I've turned the TV news off because it's just driving me crazy. So I've read a little bit about it, but <laughs> but Ben, tell me what happened with this. Why did why did she determine that that this case could be thrown out? 
Uh, well, I, I'm not actually that surprised by her uh, decision, but it's one of the one of the problems with this situation is that you you're faced with a, with a situation where uh, who would you ask in the Department of Justice as a substitute to try this case, given that their their attitude is the way that it is. Um, I don't, I'm not that surprised, but I am wondering if Sullivan will find a different way to sort of extend this out a little bit, maybe kick the can and see if they have somebody different a few months from now to continue this. Uh, uh, the, the politics of this is pretty intense. My take, Clay, is that the real issue with this is that it, it's an unprecedented move where she's issued a decision about how Judge Sullivan has to rule on his motion before Judge Sullivan rules on his motion, right? Like that, that that's where a lot of the, 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 the crazy comes in for me, that there is an argument, I, would, I wouldn't agree with it, there is an argument that Judge Sullivan could have refused the motion to dismiss, essentially, and then Rao could have come over the top and said, like, actually, no, you have to, like, grantly, you know, there, there are lots of different ways, there's lots of different ways this cat could have been skinned. But for her to, to have this decision before Sullivan is even allowed to make his ruling on his motion that he simply asked at this point for more briefing and more evidence from, that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the Naomi Rao special sauce, right? That, that's the different thing about Trump <laughs> judges from you know, regular Republican judges that I would generally disagree with. But, but as I said, you should, you should write a thank you note to Josh Hawley because he, you know, in his process of, of, of holding her up during confirmation, you know, got an admission of her, from her that she is personally pro-choice and, uh, and uh, doesn't think, uh, you know, has opinions on abortion that are not in line uh, with the base of the party. And that means that she'll never be a Republican nominee of the Supreme Court. So you should be grateful for that. <laughs> Does is it is it just a Naomi Rao issue though? I mean, Henry is the, the Justice Department in general has had quite a week. It's not just this Michael Flynn case, but but um, the, this Friday night massacre on, on last Friday. I don't know if we're calling it a firing, a uh, a pressuring to resign um, from the from the federal um, attorney in the Southern District of New York. What what exactly is going on at the Justice Department right now? It seems as if, though, there really aren't, again, I own my bias, I'm, I'm on the left, but, but it seems as if there really are not many rules being followed. Um, there's not much order going on. What What's your take on what happened on Friday with, with Attorney General Barr, uh, Henry, uh, announcing the resignation of, of Berman in New York? Well... And the, these U.S. attorneys serve at the, at the pleasure of the president. You know, Berman had no right to the job. And, you know, apparently there was some wires crossed as to whether he was going along with what the Attorney General Barr later made clear in his letter was some ongoing discussions. Uh, but I don't think we know why he was fired, because that's ultimately what did happen. Uh, but... I just think there has been so much attempt to paint the president and his team as lawless, regardless of the facts, that I would take what was said uh, without strong evidence uh, with a very big grain of salt. Do you think that what do you think that the investigations that were being undertaken in the Southern District, do you think that some of the cases, some of the uh, the convictions that he achieved in the Southern District had anything to do with why the president was unhappy with him? And if so, is that a, is that a reason? 
my point is I don't think anybody knows. I think there's a lot of people on the left who want to believe that, but I don't think anybody knows what the reason is. I think that we should generally presume good faith on behalf of people from both parties, unless demonstrated otherwise, but that doesn't seem to be a something that is on offer for people in the what, current administration. What, what, uh, what I would just suggest is that I, I think that that decision on the part of Berman, that back and forth that the Wall Street Journal reported about his unwillingness to sign on to that letter criticizing Bill de Blasio for treating uh, Orthodox Jewish communities different than protesters. I, I mean, I know that they've the public statement from uh, Kerry Kupek and the D Justice Department is that that did not play a role in Attorney General Barr's decision to abruptly fire him. Um, I don't know that that's a position that uh, a lot of people in New York on the right side of the spectrum in the legal community believe. Um, that th to defy going along with something that seems to be a pretty basic thing to just sort of tell Bill de Blasio that he needs to enforce the law equally when it comes to these communities as opposed to engaging in what I believe has been a systemic approach to targeting these communities as if they're the worst offenders. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't, but it, it smacks of anti-Semitism in a way that is, I think, really toxic and, and awful. And I think that there was pressure politically to make a statement to, uh, to sort of brush back against these restrictions that had been seemingly targeted against a religious community. And he clearly didn't go along with that. And very quickly after that followed this decision. Uh, I, it's hard for me to believe those two things aren't connected. Okay, so let me, before I, just, I let Ellie get in here, I just want to make sure, I, I want to get you in here, Ellie, but I want to, I want to make sure I followed that also, Ben. So you're, you, you're, correct me if I'm getting it wrong, your position or your, your theory is that there might, there must have been some sort of connection between his unwillingness to sign on to this letter and his sudden removal from the position. Um, it, and yeah. that, it, that it just seems too, it just seems too close in approximation. And the fact that they had spent a day basically arguing about it and, and with him saying no, and, and the top sort of flight uh, insistent. Yes. It, to me, that was just kind of, it, it's the type of thing that's a last straw if you're already irritated with somebody. Yeah, but I mean, it seems like if you're gonna if you're gonna make a jump like that to say that it must have been this, then it's also not a big leap if you're willing to make that assumption. It's also not a big leap for people on the left to say, uh, it really seems as if though it probably had something to do with the fact that he prosecuted Michael Cohen mm -hmm. and that he was investigating Rudy Giuliani. I mean, it's is, is it's it not possible. fair to be able to make those two also? No, I think I think it's certainly possible to be all of the above. It's just that in this case, the fact that they had this dispute apparently and, and uh, the reporting seems to be pretty solid that was ongoing on the eve of his dismissal, uh, that, you know, the, the thing that seems to happen with this administration is that there's always kind of a last straw dispute. There was certainly one in the instance of John Bolton. There was, there's been ones in instances of a lot of other people who've been dismissed. And I think in this case, you know, maybe they were already irritated with him at things that he was doing. But I think this smacks of a last straw dispute. Just that's that's my own personal opinion without any additional information other than what the Wall Street Journal is Ellie, hop in here. What are your thoughts? I just reject the notion that I'm supposed to treat Bill Barr and this administration with good faith, right? Um, because they have not done a single thing to earn it. And I'm not required to wake up every day like a newborn babe um, who, who looks at the world as if it is new. It is not new. Bill Barr has not done a single thing to earn 
one scintilla of my trust. He auditioned for this job, promising that he would essentially end the Mueller investigation, which he then did, and then lied about it and misled the public about what the Mueller investigation was really about. He has not for one moment of his tenure acted like an impartial uh, 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 lawyer and, uh, and instead acted like Trump's lawyer for the entire time. This is the second time during the Trump administration where they have fired the head of SDNY, which is significant because SDNY has jurisdiction over Trump's business and his family business. And that's why the the suggest the, the, the thought is that there was something shady going on here. And let's not forget, finally, that the only reason why Jeff Berman had this job is because Trump refused to appoint a head for the S for the SDNY after he fired Preet Bharara, again, not trying to kneecap the office that is in charge of investigating his personal business. I'm not required to forget all of that. I don't think you're required. Berman I don't think you're required to fire. I don't, I don't think you're required to forget any of that. Of course not. I mean, I, I didn't take Eric Holder seriously when he was, of course, the last, you know, attorney general held in contempt of Congress for refusing to testify, you know, not, you know, you know, avoiding and, and defying subpoenas, you know, that were com- completely, you know, based in factual reporting regarding the Fast and Furious program. I mean, I don't think that any Republican took him seriously as attorney general, and I don't see why any, some, anybody who's on the left would take, uh, Bill Barr seriously as attorney general. We're in a divided situation right now, and I don't think that that's going to change anytime soon. Ellie, don't, don't, is there not something to be said for the fact that the replacement that's, that's the person who's going to take uh, Berman's place in New York, Audrey Strauss, um, has been his deputy and is not necessarily, I mean, some people have claimed that she might actually be tougher on the Trump administration. If, if his goal was truly, and I know, I know, and someone's going to have to help me with the name, but I know that the initial plan was to appoint Jake Layton from New Jersey, right. As the, as the interim, um, or the, the new, uh, attorney and U S attorney and SDNY. But if, if Bill Barr, stepped back and said, okay, we'll follow the, we'll follow the law. Audrey Strauss will take over. Audrey Strauss is someone who's been there for a long time and is probably likely not going to take it easy on Donald Trump in any way or take it easy on his friends. Uh, is there not reason to at least concede that perhaps Bill Barr is playing by the rules right there? Well, I, actually, Clay, I think you said it right when you, I think you said it right in your setup for the question. Bill Barr stepped back and decided to follow the law. That, okay, yeah. That, <laughs> I told him myself. Right? <laughs> I tried to be unbiased, but I can't do it. <laughs> that wasn't his first call. His first call was to appoint Jay Clayton, who is Trump's golfing buddy, to head again the, the, the body that has original jurisdiction over Trump's businesses, right? Now, after it blew up into space, and that, that has everything to do with Berman's backbone in this situation, not Barr's intent. Once Berman stood up to Barr, Barr was forced into, as you put it, following the law, following the succession plan, something that the Trump administration has regularly tried to avoid, um, to put this deputy career civil servant in his in in, in Berman's place. Um, Strauss seems like a good person. Um, I, I, Henry, why Henry? Why would why would um, why would the president or, or the attorney general want to to appoint someone who has never been uh, a prosecutor before 
to to that role. Um, someone who was a golfing buddy of the president's, but someone who's not been in a position like that at all. What would be the motivation behind that? I really don't know what the motivation would be on that. But I do think the question is in a district like the Southern District of New York, you can rest assured that there are plenty of career or uh, civil service non political appointee attorneys who, if the Trump administration is being investigated or if the Trump organization is being investigated, are well in possession of facts that if the investigations were being politically withheld, would have both the motive and the means to easily leak it to the press. So this is why. Well, so, so but is that really the way you want your the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office to work? I mean, just because, because there are career people there? Helped. Anyone who thinks that's not how attorneys work is hopelessly naive. Yeah, but don't they usually put a U.S. attorney in the U.S. US attorney's position usually filled with someone who's been a prosecutor? I mean, you're not going to appoint me to that role. Um, you know, I, I, or, or Ellie. Ellie's not an attorney. You know, I, I, I was an attorney once. I'm not an attorney now. The fact is I don't follow who gets appointed as U.S. attorneys, and I haven't made that my career in looking at the past career prospect or past career uh, activities of people who end up being appointed to U.S. attorney. I do think that if you think that the Trump Organization is being investigated by SDNY, that you will likely find out that, A, either that's true and things are going to both proceed, or if they weren't going to proceed, you would find out about it another way. To jump to the conclusion without evidence is something that I find very distasteful. So, Henry, do you think that the prosecution, the investigation that we know is happening um, into Rudy Giuliani, you think that goes forward regardless of this move? I think that it, it will go forward regardless of this move if the investigation continues to bear fruit that a law could potentially have been broken. Uh, the other thing is that I have not heard anyone tell me that there are statutes of limitation that are being run up against, that somehow if Rudy Giuliani did violate a law, that the delay of a investigation from July until January, when Joe Biden would be able to appoint his own U.S. attorney, uh, would somehow be materially damaging to the course of justice. It may be materially damaging to the attempt to politically attack the president, because that would be timed after the election. But if one's concern is the rule of law, no one's told me that there's any statute of limitation, that if Rudy Giuliani can escape or somebody else under investigation can escape until January, they're scot-free. Again, the question is, is this politics that you're concerned about, not you, Ellie, but the people who are talking about this more generally, or is this the rule of law? I don't see how the rule of law is being disturbed one iota by what's going on. Ben? Well, I don't know if Ellie wants to respond to that, but I, I was going to ask a sort of a broader question about this, which is that, you know, we, I do think that the, the, there are a lot of little interesting moments that we've learned about in the Trump uh, administration where we think something really significant is happening that's going to bear fruit or have some deep ramifications as to the future of his presidency. And my feeling is that most of the time, that turns out not to be true. <laughs> and that and that within just a very brief, say, three or four days, you know, we have forgotten the moment in question. 
you know, the beginning of this week, we were talking about his, you know, uh, terrible turnout in Tulsa. And, oh, we're getting to that. And, Don't you worry. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, and we were, and we've been talking about, uh, you know, a number of other, you know, this, this sort of uh, sarcastic line that may not be sarcasm uh, about uh, testing and the like, uh, his frustrations with dealing with, uh, you know, a situation that he sold himself to voters as being exactly the kind of person to handle in terms of authority and law and order. Um, and now just this evening, uh, you know, we're learning that the uh, Army National Guard is deploying 400 troops uh, in Washington, D.C. to defend various monuments, potentially setting up clashes with protest groups. I just kind of feel like in, in this presidency, this this is, you know, an, an interesting moment in the sense that, you know, uh, the, the firing or the resignation of Berman is something that might have future ramifications. Uh, I don't think we can say that at the moment. But I do think that this is one of those situations where uh, th there's so many things happening that we have to try to pick out which is the one that is most important. And I didn't even mention John Bolton in that sentence. So, <laughs> <laughs> Listen, there, uh, this is, it's like drinking from a fire hose um, uh, sometimes on these podcasts because there's so many things to talk about. So I definitely want to get to that. But Ellie, I want to let you have the last word on, on this uh, justice department discussion if there's anything you wanted to respond to with from henry or or ben my rejoinder and i and i only, I only throw this out here uh, uh in the spirit of this podcast in the spirit of let's all get along since ben brought up the whataboutism with eric holder i do not see how after the trump administration we cannot get ourselves to the point where we realize that the department of justice has to be depoliticized Wherever you think about the politics of it all, whatever you, whether, whether you're left, right, or center, um, I think we can clearly see that having the Justice Department be just another political appointee like the EPA director or the, the Secretary of Energy um, does, if not real damage to the law, which I think it does, then certainly perceptional damage to the law. Having a situation where, look, the Constitution is re relatively clear here, the president gets the point. The, the his cabinet right but we could by statute say that once appointed the attorney general serves for six years and can't be fired right like we we could do that by statute having a statute where the where the attorney general was not subject to the political whims of the president would be a good thing and it's a lesson that we could have learned after richard nixon fired his way into robert bork so in the spirit of getting along, what I would hope... Or after John F. Kennedy hired his brother. Right? Or after, sure. Let, let's, <laughs> Talk about what about right, it. Let's, Everybody's let's, doing it. Let's throw it all in there. <laughs> well, but, we my concern, there? can I just, uh, just to slightly push yeah. back against that, can I, my concern with that would be that what we would end up with is a lot of people who look like they are um, elite, trustworthy, uh, stand-up, uh, righteous citizens... Uh, to occupy the office, and that gives you someone like James Comey, who you know whatever you think of him in the in the current context as a Trump critic, in my view, in the 2016 period, in his handling of the Hillary Clinton investigation, virtually every decision he made, you can make a stronger argument for the opposite, you know, just at every stage, and in ways that both would have you know potentially helped her or hurt her or the like. I just think that. The danger with those kinds of things is that you end up with someone who uh, satisfies the elite sinecure of, of Washington without necessarily being uh, someone who can actually serve the country in the best way. But here's the thing. 
it's it's kind of you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. You know, do you want the partisan who's going to defend the person in the White House and look to their interest, uh, or do you want someone who is more of an institutionalist who will suggest that the Department of Justice can do no wrong and will not take necessarily a uh, a, a strong eye toward the corruption of those institutions, which I think are just shot through with all sorts of problems, uh, both uh, corrupt corrupt wise and idiocy wise, that has nothing to do with partisanship. The elitism is a problem either way, though. Like you, you can go back and look. There are clips of me on television fighting with liberals when Bill Barr was nominated for was first put up. Right, I was one of the guys being like, "Look, look at him Iran Contra. Look at this cover letter that he wrote. I don't think this is the right guy." And I had other liberals, other former federal prosecutors who were on the liberal side, telling me, "No, no, no, no. Barr's going to be fine." So the the elitism cuts both ways. I don't I don't know that there's any way around that. I think put like this. If we had done, if we had had this law and you, you couldn't fire the, the AG, Jeff Sessions would still be the attorney general right now, which yeah. I somehow think would be better. And I. Oh, <laughs> God. No, no. <laughs> Lord, you know what? Let's end it there. <laughs> I'm still looking up. I'm still looking up Sinecure. If, I, if, we, if we were playing a drinking game for $5 words, I'd be drunk already. Rejoinder, Sinecure. Ooh, I'm lost. Let's let's talk. Let's let's talk about somebody who doesn't know what those two mean either, because I sure as hell don't. Um. After you listen to today's podcast, here's one to add to your playlist. I'm Christian O'Connell, and I've had this thought for a while. What if you took the world's funniest and most interesting people and asked them to share the stories behind their three most treasured items? When you said the idea, I thought, that's a really good idea. No doubt about it, the guitar. I think I know the, the same chords now as I did when I was 14. You know what I mean? <laughs> From iHeartRadio, this is The Stuff of Legends. Add it to your playlist for free. Just search for Stuff of Legends in your podcast app. I knew they were going to kill him. Please ain't FBI. This is Fight Night, a new podcast from iHeartRadio. This is the story about two guys from opposite sides of the street. A hustler blamed for robbing the most dangerous gangsters in the country. This is like issued a, a death warrant for me for something that I don't even know anything about. And the cop who tried to save his life. They thought he had robbed a deadliest man in this country. Guys who would not hesitate to blow your head off. In 1970, Muhammad Ali triumphantly returned to the ring. At the hustler's party that followed, gangsters from around the country were robbed of a million dollars. This story from Atlanta, Georgia, has been reported for 50 years. But now, for the first time, you're going to hear what really happened from the people who lived it. Listen and follow Fight Night on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, let's go back to the to this topic that we were we did start the week out out with, and I was going to start the episode with, but I got sidetracked here. Um, uh, yeah, Trump's rallies. Ben, you mentioned a, min, uh, a minute ago. You said something about how uh, you know it, it seems like every time something comes up, it's going to be uh, the the thing that that brings down the presidency. Or you said something to that effect. Uh, there has there has seemed to be a consistency over the past three years that nothing he does seems to affect the enthusiasm of his base, right? Mm -hmm. But there was a little bit of a, a, a downturn in enthusiasm last, fr last Saturday at his rally in Tulsa. Wh whose fault was that? Is that because 
the TikTokers and uh, some other people on social media sucked up all his reservations. The president, the Trump campaign says that's not the case, but I would think they would grab on to that excuse because the alternative is people are worried about coronavirus and didn't want to come or his enthusiasm is actually down. Which do you think it was, Ben? So I, th I think it was kind of everything. I mean, I think that there was a, a little bit of a, a TikTok sort of trolling factor. Um, but in terms of the reporting that we've seen that actually digs into it, uh, that seems to have been a little bit of a sideshow. I do think that one of the things I noticed, because I get, uh, a, you know, about you know, I'm uh, I, I'm not telling you that I'm an important person, but you know, the Donald Trump campaign emails me about twelve times a day, and the Joe Biden campaign well, that, emails me about. I don't know times if I'd brag about that with me now, Ben. You know better. <laughs> um, so, uh, so they're they're always asking for my interest. I mean, it's amazing. Uh, but uh, but uh, one of the things that you do notice is that they were pushing this rally very hard, and they made it very easy to sign up. Uh, you could have signed up, you know, basically with two clicks. And that means that I think there were a lot of folks signing up just out of some expression of support, even if they weren't from near there and had no intention of going. I also think it was a huge mistake on their part to hold this whole thing in an indoor arena. There's a big psychological effect at this moment on the difference between being indoors and being outdoors. I was at the indoor arena in South Carolina where he had his last big rally right before uh, that uh, South Carolina uh, vote that obviously uh, started the Biden comeback and led to his nomination. Uh, and uh, being there, there was a crowd inside the stadium of, I would say, about uh, you know, 12,000 or so, and then outside, you know, maybe another couple thousand. Uh, it was it was a crowd that was, I think, fairly uh, representative of, of his approach. Uh, this time around, you know, he had less than half of that, I would say. The, the problem is, you know, I don't think you can necessarily extrapolate from that, and I don't think it's all that significant in the scheme of things. He seemed a lot more on point when he was speaking to these uh, youngsters at the Turning Point Conference in Phoenix the other day. He seemed a lot more energetic and a little bit more of himself. But he thrives on this stuff. He really needs it in order to have energy. He thrives on the enthusiasm, yes. right? He thrives on the crowd. He needs that. But if he it's, doesn't have the crowd... It's like the difference then, then, between someone who's a caffeine addict uh, when they don't have their morning coffee or their Red Bull or what have you. Uh, when he doesn't have that, he gets very lackluster very quickly. And uh, I think that this was as much a an effort on the part of the campaign to inject some energy in a candidate who's been frustrated yeah. by confronting some real challenges as a president in terms of the last couple of weeks uh, with a little bit of energy. It didn't work in Tulsa. They'll have to find ways to make it work going forward. Henry, what do you think is the reason that he didn't have that turnout? I think one of the big things was just a huge mistake with the campaign and setting expectations. That One of the first things I learned as a aspiring teenage uh, political activist is always have a crowd that is larger than your space. So if you're going to reserve a 19,000-seat arena, you had better darn well be sure you can fill it. And I think that they shouldn't have But been he has sure. been in the past, right? He well, has been yes in the past no. able to fill those. Uh, but he hasn't had it happen after the coronavirus. And I think, first of all, they massively overestimated the ability of people or the willingness of people to go indoors uh, in order to hear him speak. And I think that they then massively 
misread what those supposed million RSVPs actually meant. You know, clearly, as Ben mentioned, there was not a hard commitment to actually attend uh, on behalf of many of them. And I think part of it was uh, an attempt to manage, as Ben said, the candidate who needed his morning jolt of coffee. But the way they did it ended up creating a big embarrassment. You don't. You really don't think there's any indication that his support is waning or that people are less enthusiastic? I mean, I know we don't trust polls implicitly, but the New York Times upshot this morning, I think, uh, had uh, him at 30 in the mid 30s uh, in, in support and Joe Biden at 50 percent nationwide. There is a lower level of enthusiasm for the president right now, is there not? No, it, there's a lower level of support. But that, you know, what we're talking about is enthusiasm among his base. His base isn't that much smaller. What he's doing is losing the people who weren't likely to come to these rallies anyway, the sort of casual supporter of Trump. And I think he looks very bad for re-election right now. I don't think there's any way to read the data that are coming out and not think that uh, a disaster for the president is much likelier than a victory. But that shouldn't... Is Brad affect- Pascal a dead man walking? Uh, I'm not convinced Brad Pascal has really been in charge of this campaign for quite some time. You know, you read all the people who are following this in detail, and they say that the real person in charge of the strategy aspects of the campaign is Jared. And you can see uh, bringing back people like Brad Stepien and Corey Lewandowski, you can just see a sense of let's assemble the old team again. And I suspect that in reality, he's much more of an organizer and the data guy, which he is known as, except then let me rephrase that. But is we all Jared know that the Kushner. person who runs this campaign <laughs> really is the president. The president, this all campaigns reflect the candidate, but the Trump campaign, like the Trump organization before it, really is an expression of one man's personality and one man's will, and other people try and shape it, but he really is his own campaign consultant. What, if if he's if it's his will, then what did that image of him getting off a Marine One say, Ellie? Uh, the, the, it, it got turned into a meme a lot, but I mean, do you think that do you think that he felt his numbers? I mean, he hasn't believed the polls, obviously, for a hot second um, when they don't when they don't show what he wants them to show. But there was definitely a difference about the way, about his mood and his, the way he carried himself when he got off Marine One. You saw that video, I'm assuming. Yeah, of course. Uh, Look, there's, there's a thirst on my side of the aisle for Trump to be sad. Um, This man has caused so much pain um, to so many people. So many people who, you know, don't look like him, don't have his, you know, aren't white, aren't male, um, aren't straight. He's I don't think anybody looks like him, actually. So, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. Aren't orange. Uh, um, uh, he's caused so much pain to so many people, and he seems to enjoy doing it, right? He seems to seems to be having fun um, all the time. Do you think that's fair? Do you think he enjoys hurting people, or do you think he enjoys pumping up? Oh, I absolutely think he enjoys hurting right? people. That's a, whole, that's a whole different thing, but I absolutely think he actively— Oh, come he actively, on, now. No, no I no. actively—I I, I honestly think that this person is a psychopath— who enjoys other people's <laughs> suffering, and I will die on that hill. But that's not my point. Oh, Lord my, have my, mercy. My, Come on. Wait, 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 wait. You can't. Let him die on the hill. I don't necessarily know that I agree with you either. There, either buddy. Come on. I, okay. I, I, well, I think it's your point. Let, fine. Let him finish. I, look, 
the because of that feeling, I think there is a feeling on the left that when he is sad, things are going well. And so that meme, that that moment of him uh, seeing all depressed and sad face as he got off the as he got off the helicopter, that made people feel like, hey, this is happening. Trump's actually losing. I can tell. Look how sad he is. And I and I and I push back against that. I am I am worried about that. I am worried about how I am worried about the need I think we have for Trump to be sad because just because the man is sad doesn't mean that he's losing. And I think Henry, uh, uh, while you know, agree, while saying that you know things don't look great for Trump right now, um, it's important to make a distinction between his support, which has always been around this level. Versus his enthusiasm, of which I don't think there's actually good evidence that his enthusiasm is wa- is waning. You know, Trump has an incredibly dedicated group of supporters. That group of supporters shows up to vote. That group of supporters is overrepresented in the electoral college. To think that this man is beatable or wounded um, because some K-pop fans ruined his COVID rally, I think is is the wrong lesson to take from this. And so I worry about the, as, as you put it, Clay, I worry about the memeing of sad Trump. That's not the point. The point is to beat him in an election and nothing that help, happened in Tulsa uh, helps uh, Democrats beat Trump in an election. Well, I think okay, Ellie's. Well, I, I want to use that. Yeah, I, I go think Ellie's uh, right about that uh, for a slightly different reason, which is that what people who want Trump to lose should want is that face in November. The problem is that he, <laughs> that he has that face now. And that's a recognition, uh, perhaps, of the reality which, which Henry was laying out. I think the biggest uh, support for or, or help for the left in this election is the hubris of the Trump campaign and operation, which having defied the odds so many times before, you know, uh, is frequently of the mind that, uh, you know, even if the odds say this, oh, that's ridiculous, you know, that we don't believe those numbers. Um, it would be better for the left if that was still the attitude that they have. Uh, but I think that right now the attitude is much more an awareness that they are coming, they're going to have to dig out of a hole, that they're going to have to, you know, spend all of that money that they have amassed in, in smart ways, uh, and that they are going to have to force Joe Biden uh, out of the basement and onto the field. Uh, Because until they have that, I think that what we've learned is that he has been uh, unable to define Joe Biden as being a lackluster uh, or, or slow candidate in the way that he would like to. Well, that's that that's you're headed exactly where I wanted to go. Henry, I, I wanted to ask if in his mind as he walked out of that Marine One helicopter was, oh, crap, that didn't go the way that I wanted it to go. That didn't go the way that I hoped it would go. If he had that sadness in that moment, is he capable of making a change mid-course? Um, do you think that that's something, uh, Ben, hit the nail on the head as far as I'm concerned? He has really gone off gut instinct and and fallen into success in some ways time and time again over the past three years, four years, if you count 2016, is he capable of making the changes that might be necessary um, now that he realizes, oh, crap, what what I thought was going to work may not be working? No. 
I think he, he's not capable. <laughs> he is capable. He is capable of shifting issues and shifting emphasis as he sees reactions or he sees opportunities. So shifting from Biden is uh, not up to the job to Biden is weak on China or look at the Democrats on immigration. He's certainly capable of that, but he really needs knows only one political speed, and that is divide and conquer. He believes that by de- creating sharply divisive messages, he riles up support and then he can win. That's basically what he's been doing for five years. And I think particularly with COVID and the Floyd murder, that what people in the middle, the people he needed to get in order to win the Electoral College, wanted a different type of leader. And they have seen over the last two months that he's not that type of leader. He can't do it. And I think it's going to be very difficult for him to win those people back using the old playbook, given the times and the concerns that we have. So the divide and conquer thing may be what he doubles down on then. And as Ben just just told us, we I didn't know beforehand, 400 National Guard troops have been called out in D.C. to guard some of these monuments. Certainly, we are at a time right now in this country and have been for the last few weeks where um, race is a hot topic. Equality is a hot topic. Um, It's gotten a lot of attention that I think it's needed for years and years. Um, But it has allowed, in some ways, for the president to double down on his divisive rhetoric. Um, and so what, what do you think happens with this, Ben? You, you're the one who informed me of it, so I'll let you talk about it first. The, these new National Guard troops that are out to protect uh, Confederate monuments, I guess, other monuments also in D.C., uh, is, it, is it really, do you think it's really being done um, by the president in order to protect monuments, or do you think it's being done to, to protect his his standing with his base. I, I, um, I think the past couple of days have been uh, really bad for not just the president, but the entire Republican Party when it comes to this issue. Uh, no, uh, in, in the past several years, Clay, as you know, uh, and really going back decades, uh, Republicans, conservatives, and their organizations have done uh, an enormous amount of work fundraising off of wrapping the flag around themselves, like Bill the Butcher or something like that, and uh, raising a heck of a lot of money uh, as the defenders of the American founding. You know, all of these leftists want to tear these people down, rhetorically at least. Uh, We are going to stand with them. Uh, Once they raise that money, they then use it to uh, argue for lower tax rates and for less regulation for large businesses um, and other things here and there. Uh, But really, when it comes to the cultural fight about history, they've ceded the turf to uh, uh, a left that, you know, has much more in common with the 1619 Project and a view of American history as being fundamentally corrupted by the sin of slavery and everything else attendant with it. Uh, Last night in Madison, we saw the the, uh, decapitation of a Union soldier and uh, anti-slavery uh, worker. Uh, his uh, statue was hauled through the street and thrown in the lake. Uh, we saw the uh, bringing down of a progressive feminist statue. We saw an openly gay Democratic state senator attacked in the street for filming some of the protesters um, and beaten by eight to 10 of them. He ended up in the hospital. Um, the point is, this is stuff that's out of control. 
And I think that regardless of whether these cities are run by Democrats or not, uh, they are. this redounds to a situation where a president who has talked so much about law and order is viewed as being incapable of making that happen. I think that he's going to have to take significant steps in the coming weeks to change that narrative. I think that Republican politicians, very few of them have been willing to stand with him on this point. I think that they're all pretty nervous about what could happen. But I think they're going to have to make a choice here because you can't run as the party of law and order uh, and then have uh, people who care about them uh, witness these very statues of these founders who they respect, regardless of their sins, uh, being torn down and have that be something that happened from their perspective on your watch. Ellie? Yeah, I don't care about statues. Um, uh, I mean, the, what I care about Explain that. Claire, just dig into that a little bit more so I know what you mean by that. Like, look, if if there's a statue that in some of these protests gets torn down, that shouldn't be. And we can debate should or shouldn't. I tend to think, for instance, that um, Ulysses S. Graham is a hero, is a good guy, is a guy who's who has an interesting and important history, uh, important role to play um, in American history. Was he perfect? No. Did he own slaves? Yes. Um, did he uh, uh, free that slave? Yes. That's an important part of his story as well. Um, I think, but my, my point is that I think Grant's a good guy. I would not have torn down Grant's statue, but you know what? We can rebuild Grant's statue. I would, I, I would, I would be willing to do tabula rasa, right? Tear them all down, and then we can rebuild the ones that we want in a pluralistic society. Because the thing is, is that so many of these statues were created or erected or supported um, back during a time when people who look like me didn't get a vote, didn't get a say, didn't have an opinion to an opportunity to express our opinion on who or who should not be honored um, in our country, in our states, in our communities, right? So now that we arguably are living in a more pluralistic society um, where everybody gets a vote, a voice, a chance to voice their opinion, let's knock down whatever you're going to knock down, and then we can all come together as a nation and figure out who we're going to re-erect, all right? But would that that pluralistic society really at this point allow anyone's statue to be up? I mean, if if we're allowing... But if we're allowing like certain who? people to veto, if we're allowing any anyone to veto anyone, um, then, then aren't we going to find that? I didn't say veto. Well, but I, I guess I'm just I'm trying to figure out. I've, I've heard over the last week or so um, uh, people saying that George Washington should not be memorialized in statues. Thomas Jefferson should not be. Mount Rushmore should be reconsidered. Teddy Roosevelt was uh, was was a. a Colonialist. I mean, they, it, we we do kind of live in a society where every voice gets amplified so much that do you not worry that if we sort of cleared everything and started from from scratch that no one would ever agree that anyone deserved adulation like that? No, and the reason why, and, I, and again, I, I guess I come at this from the from the position of always being a minority in the society. Like the, the, the fact is that just because there is a small group of people saying one thing, 
that doesn't mean that holds true for the majority of the country. And it doesn't mean that it holds true for a majority of the minority that you're talking about. Right. So, yes, but it's still making but it's still making a lot of people. I mean, Jimmy Kimmel's been in the news a lot this week because he had he's been called out for some blackface he did in sketches um, back in the late 90s. Yeah early 2000s. Um, do you think that that is a fair um, criticism to, get, to, to have of him to dig that up from, from way back? Do you think that his show should be canceled or do you think that that's just a small minority of voices who are calling for that? Okay, Clay, that's like three questions at once. I'm going to try to answer them all, but, yeah, sorry. <laughs> but, it, <laughs> okay, but it's thanks. a lot. And, so my, and it's difficult because I disagree with the premise of the question, right? Um, is it fair uh, to dig that up? That's, it's, it's white people who today or yesterday figured out that Jimmy Kimmel did some blackface back in the day. Black people, I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with that. Right? <laughs> black people been new. Black people been talking about how maybe Jimmy Kimmel's whiteface was made him not the best uh, spokesperson for some of the racial and social justice issues that he has um, spoken spoken about. Um, black people been new about Tina Fey's you know history of putting blackface on her show in 30 Rock. Black people been new about Aunt Jemima being racist. We been new about Uncle Ben being a racist caricature. Like these are issues that black people have talked about for a while. The difference right but do now. They, does it, on, the difference, does it affect things though? To to take Aunt Jemima off the off of the box, does that improve? Does that call? Is that an improvement? Yes. In your yes, opinion? I don't think I should have have to have a racist stereotype staring me in the face every time I go into the pancake aisle. Uh, I think it's a no brainer. The difference in this moment is that white people, for the first time in a lot of these situations, are noticing some of the racial problems that black people have been talking about and 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 agitating about for some time. So what do we do now, right? So that's, so to my first, your first part of the question, like I do not think it is unfair to Jimmy Kimmel to point out some crap that Jimmy Kimmel actually did. Ain't, ain't nobody lying on Jimmy Kimmel. Like he did that. Now, how do we go forward? Well, one of the things that we have seen and one of the things that again, the majority of black people, the majority of people of color tend to coalesce around is that, okay, understand what you did wrong understand why it was wrong, apologize and move forward. Jimmy Kimmel can apologize and move forward. Tina Fey can apologize and move forward. We can do the right thing. Uncle Ben can be changed into Peter Parker's Uncle Ben with great rights comes great responsibility. We can do this. It's not hard. It just requires a reckoning with the past. And what's happening, to, to roll that back into the statues or cancel culture or whatever, it's that there are people who don't want us to even be able to reckon with the past. We must be able to reckon with the past in order to move forward. If we can do that, then we can move forward with some of our heroes still understood in their fuller context and some of them not. So one of the things that I like to point out, and I'll, I'll, and I'll close with this, it's not just that so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so was a Confederate general general they, support, they supported the Confederacy and blah, 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 blah. It's that there were also bad losing generals who uh, who were who whose statues or who whose names were erected not because they were great American heroes but simply because what they they stood for um, oppression against the black community. So when you look at um, Fort Bragg, named after Bra Braxton Bag Bragg, who was a minor, pretty crap. Confederate general. Why isn't that fort named uh, Fort Early after Jubal Early, who was a really good Confederate general? General, I'll tell you why. Jubal Early, after the war, kind of recanted his pro-slavery 
pro-oppression, pro-segregation ways. Juba Early went on to become a pretty decent human. And so when it came time for the Klan to start erecting statues all over the places, oh, no, 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 let's not, let's not erect a statue to Juba Early. He wasn't with us in the end. But Braxton Bragg, who just got his butt whooped all across Tennessee, oh, Braxton Bragg is who we're going to put the fort to, right? It's that kind of bull. I've learned more. I've, I've, lived, I've lived in North Carolina my entire life. I ran for Congress, and my district included Fort Bragg. And I've learned more about Braxton Bragg in the last three minutes from you than I ever knew about him <laughs> at all. Um, in my entire 42 years is that um, <laughs> it, I mean I, I want to get Henry in here but I still can I jump in real yeah quick? yeah I just I think that there's an element of this that we're leaving out which is simply that so much of this talk, conversation seems to revolve around the confederacy and around slavery um, you know my my family my father's family was not American until after uh, Teddy Roosevelt charged up San Juan Hill. And so we don't really have the same opinions about things that happened before, you know, we got here. Um, and I wonder whether too much of this is going to go into a direction uh, where people who feel like their own cultural icons uh, that have nothing to do with this uh, Civil War-focused, Confederacy-focused conversation are getting torn down feel like they're getting sucked into this in a way that is deeply unfair. Um, and I think about that, you know, particularly in the mind of, of some of my Italian friends who, uh, you know, have uh, been very defensive about statues of, of Columbus, you know, g keeping in mind that, you know, in many instances, you know, those statues were put up in the 1930s uh, by their grandfathers and great-grandfathers as a symbol of, of Italian-American acceptance uh, as fully American uh, in in this country, uh, and they don't view them as having anything to do with justice for George Floyd on one side or the other. They don't see why they should be sucked into this in terms of their own symbols and their own cultural heritage. And and I think that one of the things that we need to be in mind, uh, keep in mind here, is that when we view this through the lens of what's going to happen in November in 2020, uh, we shouldn't lose sight of all the people who. Uh, feel like they're uh, participants outside of this debate or that they're being lumped into one side or the other in an unfair manner. Um, Henry, I want to I ask about whether or not there has been a, that some of this cancel stuff, in your opinion, has become a bit of a distraction. We don't talk, we, we, we spent the first week after George Floyd's murder um, and, and maybe the second week after George Floyd's murder, talking a lot about police, um, changing policing culture uh, in this country, talking a lot about the need for some some systemic changes to the criminal justice um, reform, uh, to criminal justice system, sorry. But but we don't hear that as much anymore. And I, and I wonder if you think that some of the focus on taking down statues and changing the names of forts or schools or or whatnot has has helped has kind of made the the real systemic changes lose some momentum um i i'm i'm can't help but think of hearing Lindsey Graham right after George Floyd was killed. Lindsey Graham from South Carolina actually admit, you know, I, I'm now I'm asking people in South Carolina, black friends of mine, black people in my state, and I'm understanding that I see a cop and feel very differently than my black friends do. Um, 
there was sort of for a week or so almost a meeting of the minds. I, I dare say that happens very often in this uh, political climate in this in this country anymore. But there was a little bit more of an agreement to try to sit down and try to do some things to change uh, the culture around criminal justice. But have we lost that because we've, we've focused too much on some of the Band-Aid things, um, Henry? Well, you know, I, I think that what you're seeing is uh, with some of this statue stuff is kind of a hijacking of the spirit that came out of the nearly universal revulsion over what happened with George Floyd and, you know, uh, and other murders. I mean, I saw the video of the murder of um, the gentleman who was murdered in the parking lot in Atlanta. And it's just like, who thinks that? Who does that? Who, who shoots a drunk man running away armed with a taser in the back? Um, and but it's been hijacked by people who have a broader agenda, a broader agenda to discredit America and uh, Western culture more generally. And it would be very good to get back to the focus of look, we've got we got race problems in the country. I don't think anyone who's old enough would say that we are where we were in 1964. We've gotten a lot better, but that doesn't mean we don't have a fair ways to go. Uh, but attacking George Washington and attacking Andrew Jackson over that's much more divisive. And for those people who are doing that, that has to be their intent. And that's not helpful to American unity. It's not helpful to the ongoing redefinition of American identity. That is a hallmark of America with the exception of the civil war. We've been able to redefine ourselves peacefully. And I think that's something that people on both sides need to recapture, which is, we can disagree about things, but we have a joint commitment to the American process of having these conversations in the open and being done through elected representatives and through democratic choices rather than minority mobs who are taking the law or, in this case, the existence of statues into their own hands. Can I jump in um, here for a Ellie, second? Because I, I have a really important... Yeah, I'm going to... Okay, so. Yeah, say your thing, and I've got a question for you. All right, so Henry, I, I agree, but I just dis I agree with your point. I disagree on who's doing the hijacking, right? One of the one of the things that I feel lucky about is that I am able to live pretty easily on both white Twitter and black Twitter. On white Twitter, for a week and a half now, all I've heard, the only name that I've heard, is Andrew Jackson and U.S. Grant and some other Confederate names, right? On black Twitter, the only names that you hear are Rayshard Brooks and Breonna Taylor. We still waiting for them to arrest the cops who killed Breonna Taylor. We're still waiting for justice for Rayshard Brooks. Um, we're happy that today, just today, finally, um, the grand jury charged the McMichaels, um, who are the people who lynched Ahmaud Arbery, right? But that's the black Twitter conversation. On white Twitter, it's all about these statues. In the media, it's all about these statues. I get lots of media requests, right? And in the past week and a half, I've been asked to write an article on Gone with the Wind, which I did. Um, I've been asked to come on shows like this one to talk about statues and Confederates because I have some, you know, I, I like to talk about George Thomas, a Union general who was also from Virginia who has a statue. In yeah, you would give me a straight up history lesson. No. <laughs> and, like I, 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 I get called to, on to talk about these things. Not one person has called me to ask me to come on their show and talk about Rayshard Brooks, right? So and I point that out. Just to say, like, I agree that the message is being hijacked, but it's being hijacked by a media culture that, you know, statues being torn down and dragged around and spray painted, like, that's a good visual. 
talking about is it not important for is it not important at that point for someone to say hey white people shut up <laughs> stop taking this i mean i don't know how to be more frank than that but stop taking this moment away because if it is you're not the first person I, i've got a i've got a tally with one of my very best friends who every time something else gets canceled she just marks another check and she says exactly what you say she said that ain't my people that's your people that's white people who are making these who are asking to cancel paw patrol and and shit like that right? <laughs> um and she says exactly the same thing you do but is it not i mean i, I hate to say that it's incumbent but i do want to ask is it not, would it not be valuable or important for more people to say exactly what you've just said here to us tonight, which, which would be when they go on CNN to say, stop, I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to write about that. Stop trying to take these things down because there's only a certain amount of political capital that was available there and it's being wasted. Is it not? I mean, are people really talking about the systemic changes that are necessary or are they talking about Andrew Jackson's um, statue? And does that not concern you? Um, and, and how do we stop people from doing that? Like I said, I feel like on black Twitter and, and black publications with black voices, there is a whole ongoing continuous conversation about what can be done about police brutality. It's this conversation that Cory Booker and Kamala Harris are having. It's a conversation that happens when we talk about Julian Castro's um, police deals, a conversation that a lot of black people are trying to have with the Democratic Party to like get them to to, to, to put a little more, more teeth into their bills. The Democratic Party voted today to block maybe the most like centrist proposal that Republicans have ever put on the floor of the U.S. Senate when it comes to police reform because they want this to be a campaign issue in the fall. How are we supposed to take those conversations seriously? I mean, I, honestly, I mean, well, listen, I... I, I I, I, I don't, I, I, it's not my place. To, I'm going to jump in and give my opinion anyway. <laughs> I, I happen to agree with that. There, But there's also, there are also only two black senators on the Democratic side, and I, I'm not sure what their position was. I didn't follow up on that uh, really myself, but yeah. I mean, it they're seems basically like a little bit of progress is better than no progress they're, at all. They're basically but is it three... not just a bit of a more roast? Is it not just a bit more racism, Ellie, for white people to pretend that they know better how to handle this situation right now than than black people. White people know better, and white people have decided that the best way to do this is to change the name of these towns, to change the names of the, get rid of these statues, etc. And it's just, it's more, it's more racism to act as if though white people know how to handle this better than black people who are saying, no, let's talk about Rashad Brooks, let's talk about Breonna Taylor, let's continue to talk about George Floyd, let's continue to talk about um, reforming police, police departments. Um, doesn't someone need to say, stop being, stop acting like you know better? I, okay, so two two points. One, I agree with you, yes, and I do feel like people are trying to do that. But my second point is that the, the reason why this is a difficult dance, Clay, is that we need the allyship. Like, we, we black people are a, a vocal minority, but we are still fundamentally a minority. We cannot get popular change. But the allies are hurting the cause, I, are they not? I, look, I... <laughs> I spent, uh, I think uh, uh, Michael Harriet from The Root said that, um, describing me, that I spend most of my time excoriating Democrats and a little bit of my time uh, making fun of Republicans. Like, I, I, I <laughs> like, I agree. That sounds like me. <laughs> I, I agree. Like, I, I need the Democrats to do better than they are. I need white Democrats to do better than they are right now. But I can't deny the fact that and I've, I've made this point before, I've, I've been writing publicly, or I've been writing in a public-facing way um, since 2008. 
there is no article that I've written since 2008 about police brutality that I cannot essentially cut, paste, change the name of the black victim, change the name of the white cop and put it up tomorrow. And you think it's the same article, right? You think it's, you think it's a new article. Like the, this has been a long term problem in the African-American community. It's a long term thing that we have, we have uh, rallied about. And this moment is the most multiracial, multi-ethnic moment ever on this issue. I mean, we haven't seen a multi-ethnic group rally for civil rights on this scale since the 60s. So you have to find a way. I think what black people are trying to do right now, black leaders are trying to do, like Alicia Garza, who's actually a founder of Black Lives Matter, right? What we're trying to do is find a way to merge the allyship, which isn't always helpful, as you point out, Clay, into something that can still have the kind of positive, long-lasting change. And the last point that I'll make is that I don't think that you see, remember, we just had an election yesterday and progressives in New York state did very well. And I don't think you see that. You know, we elected three black people for Congress in New York state, two of them openly gay. I don't think you see this kind of progressive congressional primary victories that we saw without everything that's been happening over the past couple of weeks. So I think there is... The movement well, is moving in the right direction. But yeah, you're right, Clay. Not not all allyship is the best allyship right now. Well, I would I will I will point out that, that the districts where more progressive candidates won were blue districts already and very well may just be examples of of more congressmen and women uh, who are at the extremes of their party in the same way that in the 11th district um, of North Carolina last night, a person more conservative than uh, than Trump and Mark Meadows wanted to win, uh, won the primary in a Republican primary here in North Carolina. I think it's an example of of both parties just kind of running to the extremes. I want to keep talking about all of this. I wanted to get to, to Ben's very good point about Democrats trying to to stretch this out to be an election issue because I don't know that I disagree with that either but we do have to get on to our quick fire round we take questions from our audience for our guests each week and we ask you to send those questions into us on Twitter and Instagram at Politicon Twitter and Instagram at Politicon or you can email them to us podcast at politicon.com um, we have questions like I said from the audience we call it quick fire round we'll see how quick fire these can be they never end up being that quick but we'll give one to each uh, to each guest um, Alexis from Miami we'll start with Ben Alexis from Miami asks who is doing more damage to Trump Sarah Cooper or the Lincoln Project <laughs> uh, I'm, I honestly am not sure that either of them are doing any significant damage uh, to Trump. Uh, I, I do think that uh, Trump is his own man and the massive uh, source of, of damage that he does is, uh, is self-earned and to himself. Uh, so, uh, Alexis, I will tell you that uh, I guess if I had to do marginally, I would say that, that the Lincoln Project um, is in, utterly irrelevant. It is entirely about uh, uh, taking money from donors uh, and, spe- and putting it into the pockets of political consultants and ad buyers. Um, those things crop up occasionally, but they've been doing a lot of that in recent years. Um, so That's what all politics yeah, is. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> consultants. Um, Henry, Henry Stephen from Charleston, uh, not sure if that's West Virginia or South Carolina, but Stephen from Charleston asks, why has President Trump given up on COVID? <laughs> why has he given up on what? COVID-19. 
You know, I think uh, the president has was always lukewarm about the shutdown. Uh, I think he wants to get back to what he believes is a good selling point, uh, which is the once robust economy. And I think he also knows that he flubbed it. You know, he had daily press conferences in April that were canceled when he suggested, he says jokingly, ingesting bleach to fight the disease. You know, I look at elections all around the world and virtually every incumbent left, right and center has seen an increase in their approval ratings and in their party standings because all a country wants in a time of crisis is calm and stable leadership. Trump is about the only one who's seen his standing go down. And I think he knows that. Okay. Ellie, Brenda from Los Angeles. Uh, why do, um, based on this question, I'm going to guess she lives a little bit outside of Los Angeles. But um, it says, LA, why do protesters and rally goers get to spread COVID while, when I still can't go back to work? Oh, my God. Um, they're not getting to spread COVID. Um, the, the protests have generally been um, very masked up. Um, I have been one of those voices saying that all protesters should wear masks. Uh, uh, so, so it's not it's not a situation where the protesters are getting to spread COVID. We want everybody uh, to be as safe as possible um, while they're outside, uh, and that includes wearing a mask, washing your hands, and doing all the all the things uh, possible to keep yourself safe. Now, one difference is, and, and I'll take Brenda's I'll take Brenda's premise at least this far. Um, one of the things that you can't do very well at a protest is socially distance. Um, and this is a real concern with the protesters, even though the majority of them are wearing masks, the inability to social distance during a protest uh, is a problem. One way to correct for that problem or ameliorate that problem would be to uh, uh, stop having the police tactic that's called kettling. This involves them kind of shoving the protesters together um, along corridors where it's easier to control them. I think the most famous case actually happened here in New York where about um, where, where a bunch of protests, about 5,000 protesters were trapped on the Manhattan Bridge for an hour and a half um, to kettle them um, between Brooklyn and Manhattan. Um, to the extent that the police could not do that, and let the protesters fan out a little bit more. Um, that would also increase safety and decrease the spread of the virus. Um, but it's not a Brenda. It's not a situation where where people are turning a blind eye um, to the potential spread of the virus during these protests. It's something that people who care about the protesters' lives um, are very very concerned about. And me personally, it's one of the reasons why I have not been at a protest. I live with my mother who's 70, she's a high risk person, and I have not felt like I can risk uh, going to these protests that I support um, in, in theory, uh, given the realities of the virus. Okay, Ben, Jason from Boston asks, can Biden win without a black woman, assuming SVP? I actually think he could. Um, I think that in the context of the moment, I think he won't bother to try. <laughs> and that's the shortest answer I can give you on that. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, uh, Henry, um, Kira from Nashville asks, is John Bolton correct? Did the Dems blow the impeachment? Oh, absolutely. They blew the impeachment if their goal was to remove Donald Trump from office. That the only way you can remove somebody from office is to have the consent of the other party. 
But from the moment that the Ukraine gate, for lack of a better phrase, came out, it was clear that Democratic impeachment managers of the House were going to have a rush to judgment to get this out the door as quickly as possible and to make no serious attempt to persuade Republicans that their leader was crooked or criminal enough to remove from office. Uh, so absolutely, it was botched if the intent was to actually remove Donald Trump from office. Okay. And Ellie, we'll give you this one last because I'm biased. I know your answer already, and I just want to give you a chance to say it. Tim from New Haven says, <laughs> asks, Biden is up 15 points nationally. Can Dems breathe easy? Hell no. Do not breathe. <laughs> you don't want to elaborate at all. Are <laughs> kidding me? New York Times had Hillary Clinton winning by night at a 90% clip, like at 8 o'clock. On election, no, you cannot breathe easily. Are you kidding me, Tim? Well, ah, <laughs> I figured, I figured you'd be animated. That you did not let me down. None of you did. Henry Olson, Ben Dominich, Ellie Mistal, thank you so much for being here. Um, this was uh, one of my favorite conversations, and I appreciate all of you. I'm gonna. I feel like I'm gonna need to take a break now and go um, uh, grab my dictionary. We're going to have to call this episode $5 Words or something like that. Ameliorate, sinecure, rejoinder. I'm going to be busy looking up some words from three people who are far smarter than I am. Uh, thank you guys so much for being here. Um, Ellie, where can we see you? Where can we hear you? Where can we read you? Uh, you can read all my stuff at thenation.com. And I'm also at Ellie NYC, E-L-I-E-N-Y-C. Um, because when I made that Twitter handle, I didn't think I would ever have children. And you you didn't think there'd ever be any other Ellie's in NYC, <laughs> apparently either. Um, uh, Henry, you've got uh, two books that we can find: the Working Class Republican, Ronald Reagan, and the Return of the Blue of Blue Collar Conservatism, and the Four Faces of the Republican Party: The Fight for the 2016 Presidential Nomination. Where can we uh, Where can we read more of your stuff? Obviously, at Washington Post, and where else? Uh, well, I'm exclusive for the Washington Post, so you need to be a subscriber. But I write every day, uh, Monday through Friday, in the online edition. And I am on Twitter at, at Henry Olson, that's O-L-S-E-N, at Henry Olson, E-P-P-C. E-P-P-C, <laughs> at Henry Olson, E-P-P-C. That's right. Okay, we'll make sure that's um, tagged on our Instagram and Twitter also. And Ben, the Federalist, we can, you, you don't write that much for the Federalist, but you oversee it all, and we can see you on a whole bunch of different TV networks. Where else can we find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at B Dominich, that's B-D-O-M-E-N-E-C-H. Uh, I uh, write uh, at the Federalist. I mostly run the Federalist. I also have a daily newsletter, The Transom, which you can subscribe to at thetransom.com. Uh, and uh, yes, I'm, I'm on uh, Fox and some other networks uh, uh, fairly frequently, but uh, most of all, uh, Clay, I just wanted to thank you for the opportunity to join you tonight for what has been a very smart conversation. I, uh, well, I uh, thank you for joining us. Hold on. I just want to make sure. Is it the transom.com or the transom.org? It's both. <laughs> it's both. Okay. okay. I have it. I, I know it is. I, I, I sang at Ben's wedding, so we're friends. So I know I have it as the transom.org. So I had a little inside info. I didn't know I could find it at .com also. Okay. So the transom.org or the transom.com. Um, and we'll make sure you all are tagged on the Instagram and Twitter accounts for Politicon, which um, hopefully you, if you're listening right now, already know about. Please like and subscribe and rate and review and all that fancy stuff you do on um, on for podcasts and whatnot. I only listen to this one, so I don't know. Um, <laughs> you can find us here next week, and we will hopefully answer the question, how the heck are we going to get along? Thanks a lot, guys.
What's up? I am Machine Gun Kelly, and look, I know Halloween is going to suck this year because there's no trick-or-treating and all that, but I've got a treat. There's a musical podcast that I made with my friends 24K Golden, Ian Dior, Dana Dentata, and Satan. Well, Satan's not my friend, but Tommy Lee is, and Tommy Lee is playing Satan. But don't just take it from me. Tell him, Satan. Thanks, dude. It feels great to be playing Satan on this podcast. Listen to Halloween in Hell on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or whatever you get your podcasts on. After you listen to today's podcast, here's one to add to your playlist. I'm Christian O'Connell, and I've had this thought for a while. What if you took the world's funniest and most interesting people... Hello, I'm Ricky Gervais. I'm Celeste Barber. Some people call me Beyonce. I'm Russell Brand. ...and asked them to share the stories behind their three most treasured items. No doubt about it, the guitar. I think I know the same chords now as I did when I was 14. From iHeartRadio, this is The Stuff of Legends. Add it to your playlist for free. Just search for Stuff of Legends in your podcast app.